the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. About seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today, in the first hour of the program, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He is Deputy General Counsel with First Liberty. Tomorrow is Bring Your Bible to School Day, and Jeremy's going to weigh in on its legality and whether it should be encouraged. We'll also talk with Kate Anderson. She serves as third chair in a case having to do with how sex is defined in federal Uh, employment statute and the importance of a clear definition as given by Congress as opposed to sexual orientation, which some judges are uh, replacing. uh, And that undermines uh, opportunities for women and girls. We'll explain all of that a bit later. In the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Samuel Hakim. He is the president of Redeeming the Nations. They have their banquet coming up, pressing on. It's Inspired by Philippians 3.14, that's coming up Sunday, October 13th. We'll tell you all about that, but we'll also talk about the important work they are doing, extending the gospel to those who are in Muslim countries, as well as right here at home. He'll join us in the five o'clock hour. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Bring Your Bibles to School Day is coming up tomorrow, and the expectation is more than half a million students from across the United States are going to participate in the sixth annual Bring Your Bible to uh, School movement. Um, And we'll talk with uh, my guest, Jeremy Dice, about that coming up uh, at the bottom of the hour. First, to look at some of the day's headlines, a photo obtained by Fox News uh, on Tucker Carlson tonight shows former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter golfing in the Hamptons with Devin Archer, who served on the board of the Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma. Uh, holding uh, holdings with Hunter earlier this month. Joe Biden said in Iowa that he never discussed his son's foreign business dealings with him. I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings, pointing the finger at the president. I know Trump deserves to be investigated. He's violating very basic norm of a president. You should be asking him, why is he uh, on the phone with a foreign leader trying to intimidate a foreign leader? You should be looking at Trump, end quote. Well, Hunter Biden told The New Yorker previously that he and his father had spoken just once about his work in Ukraine. A source says the photo was taken in August of 2014. News reports at the time indicated the vice president was in the Hamptons. Hunter Biden and Archer joined the Burisma Holdings Board in April of 2014. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was among the administration officials who listened in on the July 25, uh, 25th phone call between President Trump and Ukraine's president. A senior State Department official told The Wall Street Journal the report would appear to support the president's personal attorney Rudy Giuliani's claim on CBS News Face the Nation on Sunday that Pompeo was aware of his efforts to encourage Ukraine's government to investigate the Bidens. Over the weekend, the Democratic chairman of three House committees subpoenaed Pompeo for documents related to Ukraine, they said were critical to their probe. House Democrats on Monday subpoena Giuliani's text messages, phone records, and other documents and communications as part of their formal impeachment inquiry into the president. In an interview on Hannity, Giuliani blasted the Biden camp for apparently trying to silence him by encouraging media outlets not to book him as a guest. 
The former New York City mayor said the Democrats are going to turn into the party of corruption. Meanwhile, top Republicans are wondering whether Trump is a victim of political setup by the Democrats in the Ukraine call controversy. Thanks to comments made by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi during her 60 Minutes interview on Sunday. Separately, a Justice Department official says on Monday that Attorney General William Barr asked the president to make introductions to foreign countries that might have information pertinent to U.S. Attorney John Durham's ongoing probe into the origins of the Russia collusion investigation and possible misconduct by the intelligence community. But a person familiar with the situation says it would be wrong to say Trump pressed the Australian prime minister for information that could have uh, discredited former special counsel Mueller's new completed probe as the New York Times reported earlier on Monday. Senator Lindsey Graham slammed the Times report on Hannity, calling it an effort to shut down Barr's investigation. Meanwhile, Mr. Schiff apparently was aware of, or at least a staff member was aware of the report long before it was made public, uh, which contradicts statements that were made about uh, when uh, he was privy to allegations. It's a mess. When Red, that's when, and then capital Red, all one word, the new GOP online fundraising platform designed to a compete with Democrats in the battle for small-dollar donors has raised over $28 million since launching three months ago, with top officials crediting the Democrats' impeachment push for a big spike in fundraising over the last week. Uh, Win Red raised $28.1 million in the third fundraising quarter, which began in July and ended on Monday. The online platform is used to raise money for President Trump's re-election, campaign committees, and various Republican candidates across the country. Two mall titans may invest in the bankrupt teen retailer Forever 21. The retailer filed for bankruptcy protection on Sunday morning, recently tried to cut a deal in which its two largest landlords, Brookfield Property and Simon Property, would take an ownership stake, according to the New York Post. The reason is Forever 21 uses a lot of mall space with its 541 stores. The nationwide closure of 178 locations would leave big holes at shopping malls. Negotiations between the retailer, Brookfield and Simon, reached an impasse over the weekend and are considered dead, at least for now. Republican Congressman Chris Collins, one of the first uh, members of Congress to throw his support behind President Trump, reportedly resigned his congressional seat on Monday, a day before he uh, pled guilty to insider training charges, trading charges rather. He had previously vowed to fight. Collins, 69, is accused of using confidential information about the Australian company Innate um, Immunotherapeutics. And the family of a young girl who claimed to be the victim of a hate crime at a Virginia Christian school where Karen Pence teaches admitted Monday that the girl invented the incident. The 12-year-old girl told her grandmother on Wednesday that three boys in her grade at Springfield's Emanuel Christian School held her down and cut her dreadlocks while using the racially charged term nappy. Major news outlets emphasize that Second Lady Karen Pence is an art teacher at Emanuel Christian Elementary School and relished the notion that some kind of hate crime had occurred there. Well, it turns out the 12-year-old made the story up. Hong Kong police fired tear gas and rubber bullets at a pro-democracy protesters throwing petrol bombs in the Asian financial hub on Tuesday as its Chinese ruler celebrated the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic. The South China Morning Post and television report said at least one person was wounded in the chest by police firing live rounds. And a gauge of U.S. manufacturing slumped to the lowest level in more than 10 years in September as uh, exports dived amid escalating trade wars. 
The U.S. Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index from the Institute for Supply Management plunged to 47.8% in September, the lowest since June of 2009, marking the second consecutive month of contraction. Any figure below 50% signals a contraction. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, but we'll be back when we return. Uh, later in the program, Jeremy Dice will join me. We're going to talk about uh, tomorrow being Bring Your Bibles to School Day. So is that a big deal? Is it legal? Should it be encouraged? All of that when he joins us later in today's program, First Hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Some red state uh, Senate Democrats are fretting that the ongoing House impeachment inquiry could expand uncontrollably and become a kitchen sink of complaints about President Trump and her chances of regaining the Senate majority in 2020. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, John Tester of Montana specifically, expressed concerns and have told Minority Leader Chuck Schumer that leadership cannot allow liberal Democrats to push for the inquiry to include allegations about Trump illegally using his office to enrich himself or relitigate findings from the former special counsel Robert Mueller's probe of Russian election meddling in 2016. In other developments, Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, said on Tuesday he's considering individual lawsuits against House Democrats for allegedly violating the constitutional and civil rights of the president and members of his administration amid new congressional inquiries and subpoenas resulting from a whistleblower complaint. Representatives Elliot Engel, Adam Schiff and Elijah, uh, Elijah Cummings, the Democratic chairman of three House committees, informed the State Department in a letter late Tuesday that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo appears to have a conflict of interest and might now be a fact witness in their ongoing impeachment inquiry after Pompeo accused Democrats of trying to bully Foreign Service officers into testifying. Former Attorney General Eric Holder said on Tuesday that current Attorney General William Barr is paying a price and sacrificing his credibility by spearheading U.S. Attorney John Durham's ongoing probe into possible misconduct by the intelligence community at the outset of the Russian investigation. Oh, really? Well, Holder also remarked separately that it was a reality that Republicans will cheat in the 2020 elections by trying to move polling places and a whole variety of things prompting Republicans to dismiss his outlandish and baseless accusations. A new report from The New York Times on Tuesday show the extraordinary measures President Trump inquired about as part of his push to secure the U.S.-Mexico border. In an excerpt from the upcoming book, Border Wars Inside Trump's Assault on Immigration, Times reporter Michael Shear and Julie Hirschfeld Davis allege that Trump has repeatedly floated the idea of installing a water-filled trench and uh, stocking it with deadly reptiles. He also suggested shooting migrants in the legs to slow them down. A source who was uh, in the room at the time confirmed the conversation about shooting migrants in the legs, according to uh, their source, the president earlier today denied any of that was even remotely true. A federal judge on Tuesday ruled against families suing Harvard for alleged uh, discrimination against Asian-American applicants and a blow to activists who hoped to chip away at affirmative action programs. U.S. District Court Judge uh, Allison Burroughs said Harvard had a compelling interest to consider race and admissions because of the benefits of a diverse student body, citing Supreme Court precedent from the 1978 affirmative action case, Regents of the University of California versus Bakke. Burroughs said Harvard's program was not perfect, but ruled that it tread lightly enough in considering race that it could be considered constitutional, could be. The organization representing the plaintiffs, students of fair admissions, said it will appeal that decision because it could also not be constitutional. 
Johnson & Johnson and its Janssen Pharmaceutical subsidiary reached a deal worth more than $20 million with two Ohio counties uh, late Tuesday to avoid trial in the opioid addiction crisis. The conglomerate is the fifth drug company to reach a settlement with the two countries, or rather counties, in order to avoid the first federal trial over the nation's opioid crisis. J&J is not admitting liability in the settlement, which calls for the company to pay $10 million to the counties and includes provisions for the company to reimburse the counties up to $5 million for legal expenses. The company will also contribute another $5.4 million to nonprofit organizations that deal with opioids. During a campaign event yesterday evening, Senator Sanders experienced some chest discomfort. Following medical evaluation and testing, he was found to have a blockage in one artery and two stents uh, were successfully inserted, said Sanders senior advisor Jeff Weaver on Wednesday in a statement. Senator Sanders is uh, conversing and in good spirits. He will be resting up over the next few days, Weaver said. We are canceling his events and appearances until further notice, and we will continue to provide appropriate updates. Well, remember last month when San Francisco's Board of Supervisors passed a resolution declaring the National Rifle Association a domestic terrorist organization and ordered city employees to take every reasonable step to limit business interactions with the NRA and its supporters? Well, the NRA sued, and lo and behold, San Francisco is backing down before the suit even went to court. The mayor, in a new memo, states no municipal department will take steps to restrict any contractor from doing business with the NRA or to restrict city contracting opportunities for any business that has any relationship with the NRA. Meanwhile, the NRA is challenging in a similar law passed by the Los Angeles City Council that requires city contractors to disclose any ties they have with the gun rights group. A U.S. judge on on Tuesday, temporarily blocked a California law aimed at forcing President Donald Trump to release his personal income tax returns in order to appear on, appear rather on the 2020 primary ballot. U.S. District Judge Morrison C. England Jr. issued a written opinion saying the law likely violates the U.S. Constitution. Well, Americans on average spent more on taxes in 2018 than they did on, well, the basic necessities of food, clothing and health care combined. That's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Consumer Expenditure Survey. The $14,758.11 that the average American consumer uh, unit paid for food, clothing, and health care was $3,859.82 less than the $18,617.93 it paid in federal, state, and local income taxes, property taxes, Social Security taxes, and other Taxes. My guess is that is a conservative estimate. In other news, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit ruled Tuesday that the Federal Communications Commission was mostly lawful in its rollback of Obama-era net neutrality guidelines while offering a glimmer of hope to proponents of the guidelines. In a two-to-one ruling, the court said the FCC had acted lawfully in its decision to stop regulating broadband like a utility or a common carrier, such as a phone service. But it said the FCC had exceeded its authority in attempting to block states from passing their own rules in contradiction to the net neutrality repeal, as California did in 2018. Well, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in July that an Elizabeth Warren presidency would pose an existential threat to the company. 
according to over two hours of leaked audio published by The Verge. And a federal judge handed an early win to abortion rights activists Tuesday by blocking Georgia's restrictive law from going into effect. But it is only the first step as a lawsuit makes its way through the court system. District Judge Steve Jones ruling stops House Bill 481 from taking effect on the 1st of January while the case plays out. Um, Pro-abortion activists are hoping the case winds up in the U.S. Supreme Court. Murder is on the decline in America, according to a new FBI report. The nation's top federal law enforcement agency found that homicides fell by 6% in 2018. The decline in homicides is part of a 3% drop in the violent crime rate, according to the Uniform Crime Report, the FBI's annually, annual tally rather of crime reported to local police departments. The 2018 decline follows several years of slight increases in homicide and violent crime, uh, driven largely by spikes in major cities such as Chicago and Washington, D.C. The Daily Caller reports a uh, county police department in Virginia announced Tuesday that one of their officers was suspended for turning an illegal alien over to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, after determining the individual had dodged a deportation hearing. Fairfax County Police Chief Edwin Rossler Jr. said the officer in question had a lapse in judgment. When he called ICE about the illegal alien, Fairfax County has a, pol- a policy rather that limits the police department's cooperation with ICE. The lapse in judgment here is being directed at the uh, wrong person, it seems to me. Well, on this day in history, 1950, the comic strip Peanuts, created by Charles Schultz, is syndicated to seven newspapers. On this day in history, 1919, President Woodrow Wilson suffers a serious stroke at the White House that leaves him paralyzed on his left side. And on this day in history, in 1967, Thurgood Marshall is sworn in as an associate justice to the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He is Deputy General Counsel at First Liberty. Tomorrow is Bring Your Bible to School Day, and Jeremy weighs in on its legality and whether it should be encouraged. Now, the Freedom From Religion Foundation and First Liberty happen to agree on this question. We'll explain that when he joins us in just a few moments. Also, in the um, uh, final segment of this hour, we'll talk with Kate Anderson. Uh, We'll talk about a decision over how the word sex is going to be defined uh, as it relates to federal employment statutes. If you define it one way, as has been understood throughout our nation's history, things remain as they are. If you define it as sexual orientation or preference, that changes everything. We'll talk about the case that's pending before the Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, kids across the nation are set to bring their Bibles to school on Thursday, but is it legal to bring a Bible to public school? Is there a scenario where it's not legal? Well, lawyers on both sides of this debate are weighing in ahead of the Bring Your Bible to School Day, which is sponsored by Focus on the Family. They report that more than 650,000 students are participating in the event um, last year and this year. My next guest, Jeremy Dice, says he's special counsel for litigation and communications for Liberty uh, First Liberty Institute. Of course it is uh, acceptable for kids to... Um, to bring their Bibles to school. But is there a scenario in which that may not be the case? He's going to join us momentarily to talk about uh, this whole thing, as tomorrow is the day. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy Dice. I appreciate it very much. 
Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the big question, I, I guess, uh, initially is whether or not it is lawful, if it's legal, to bring a Bible to public school, if a student decides they want to participate and bring your Bible to school day tomorrow. Well, absolutely. In fact, you don't have to do it just tomorrow. You can bring your Bible to school every day, and the law smiles upon that. The other um, part of the scenario is, is there a case in which it's not legal? I mean, there's there seems to be some controversy, some misunderstanding, in fact, among some teachers and administrators as to whether or not it is acceptable. Is there a scenario where that's not the case? You know, it's hard to figure out a scenario in which that would be the case. And the best I can come up with is that if you're pulling your Bible out during the middle of trigonometry, you're probably doing it wrong. But I mean, maybe there's something that goes there as well. But here's kind of the rule of thumb. Students can bring their Bible to school every day if they'd like to. They can reference it during class assignments. They can they can re- quote it during class assignments if they want to. And they can read it during free reading times at school. They can read it in the hallway or at lunchtime during break periods, uh, during study hall, and any other time the kids are allowed to read whatever books they'd like to be able to be reading. About the only thing they really can't do is do what's called disrupting the educational environment of the school. So If you're going to, during the middle of trigonometry, pull your Bible out and get on your desk and start reading from the sermon by Paul on Mars Hill, this is probably a a bad and and a dumb (laughs) thing to be doing. But other than that, you know, it's pretty fair game. You can reference your, your Bible during class discussions. You can reference it in your class assignments. There's a whole lot of protection for you to be able to bring your Bible and reference it during your your class assignments and during your time at school. I know that First Liberty has had to defend students who have done just that, appropriately bringing their Bible to school, making reference to it, for example, in a school assignment. Uh, One 12-year-old comes to mind, Giovanni Rubio, uh, who was humiliated by his teacher. Tell us a bit about that case and uh, what happened when it was challenged? Yeah, Giovanni got his Bible from his church at Christmas time and decided he wanted to bring it to school and read it during free reading time. And so that's exactly what he did. And when that happened, his teacher said, You can't do that. And so he went home that night and did listen, kids. He did what every kid should do. He talked to his parents, and his dad said, You know, I don't think that's right. If it happens again, have the teacher give me a call because I want to talk to her about it. And so it did. It happened again. He pulled the Bible out during free reading time, and the teacher said, what is that book? He said, it's my Bible. She said, put it away. He said, hey, my dad said if you said that, you're supposed to call him. And so he had to go to the front of the classroom, dial his dad's phone number, and in front of the whole class as they watched, his teacher left a voicemail for his dad in which she said, your son is reading a book. And she said it just like this. He's reading a book, a religious book, in my classroom, and he can't read that in my classroom. And so uh, uh, Gio's dad called us, and we got a hold of the school district, sent them a letter, and said, look, you can't be doing this. Kids are allowed to read their Bible during free reading time at, at school. But you know the funny thing about that story is that the school district actually got our letter and said, oh, yeah, sure, they, he could, but this wasn't actually a free reading time. It, they had actually picked from a, a list of books. And we said, well, we don't think you're actually telling the truth on that, but let's just assume you are. Would you send us your list? And there was this really long pause on the other side of the phone, and they eventually did send us the list, and we looked at it, and you know, almost all the books of the Bible were actually on the approved reading list anyway. And so we sent them another letter and said, do you want to reconsider? And they said, yeah, sure, I guess so. Giovanni <laughs> can read his Bible at school. So why is there misunderstanding? I won't say it's broad misunderstanding. Is it uh, among some teachers and uh, school districts? Is it a personal preference? Is it a deliberate misreading of the law? How is it that there is a need still for challenges to 
uh, those who would tell students, no, you cannot read your Bible at acceptable times uh, at school. Yeah, I just think there's a genuine fear out there because so many people have for so long said that any kind of public display of religion or anything that is religious coming on public property, and especially the more religious that gets, right? The Bible is one of the most religious things in the Christian life. The more religious it is and the more broadly in public it is, the more it has to be shooed out of public sight. It has to be taken away from public visibility. And so I think teachers are just simply, well, I think they're ignorant, but not in like a a choice way. They're, They're ignorant in the sense that they don't know that the law actually does protect the student's right to be able to bring his Bible to school and to reference it during class assignments and to talk about it in his class discussions. That's perfectly acceptable, and the Constitution says, hey, go for it. It's no problem at all. In fact, if a teacher or an administrator were actually to tell a teacher or tell a student, rather, to put the Bible away or to to say you can't read that, or worse, to add it to the banned book list, well, that's actually demonstrating a hostility to religion that the First Amendment guards against. And and we'd be happy at FirstLiberty.org to take a a client on like that and apply the law back to those school districts that that, that seem to think that they can tell students when they can or cannot reference their Bible, even when it's on public property. I know another incident that um, involved... Uh, First Liberty uh, involved a student, Mackenzie Fraser, from Nevada. She was told twice that she couldn't reference the Bible in a classroom assignment. She's not reading it during class time, even appropriate class time, but made reference to it. Uh, Tell us a bit about that case and whether or not a sixth grader like uh, this girl um, is forbidden from making reference. Yeah, that was a remarkable case because Mackenzie is a pastor's daughter, and and she was asked to write a PowerPoint presentation to introduce herself. It's called All About Me. And, and she wanted to put on there John 3.16, which is a very significant verse to her in her Christian life. Well, the teacher said before the assignment got started that neither the Bible nor the Book of Mormon could be referenced in any of those assignments, and so they, they couldn't quote from those at all. And so she kind of put it out of her mind until a different class assignment came around when she's supposed to be talking about uh, self-esteem. And her dad said, well, why don't you talk about how you find your self-esteem by being made in the image of God, like it says in the Bible. And she said to her dad something I think is just so telling and poignant. She said, well, Dad, a couple weeks ago this assignment came up about this PowerPoint presentation, and she said I couldn't reference the Bible on that. And so, Dad, I think that at school it's, it's not just wrong for me to talk about my faith. I think it's actually illegal. I think it's remarkable that a young lady that young would, would go from it's being just wrong to thinking that she could you know get in trouble or go to jail because she would reference her faith at school. Well, thankfully, we were able to connect, and, and the good news is is that uh, Mackenzie was able to resubmit her, her, um, her assignment, this time with John 316 on it, and, and everything turned out just fine because of all that. In fact, the school district even apologized for the, the simple error that they made. Uh, but these kind of things don't need to happen. It's, it's perfectly okay for people of faith, whatever faith background they come from, to be able to reference their faith when they're on public property, and that includes in the public schools. Well, I appreciate your um, reassuring uh, kids that they are, in fact, free to do so. I know Focus on the Family posted a memo put together by Alliance Defending Freedom on the First Amendment rights of students to promote and participate this occasion for students to be able to bring uh, their Bibles with them. And uh, it just reinforces the notion that um, despite what a teacher or administrator, a principal might say, this is what um, the Constitution permits. This is what the Supreme Court has supported. So boldly bring your Bible to uh, to school with you uh, on Thursday and uh, follow the rules of the school. But you are, are free to do just that. 
Absolutely. And look, if something goes wrong, go to firstliberty.org and let us know, because we, we want to make sure that you have the freedom to be able to do that, not just tomorrow on Bring Your Bible to School Day, but, you know, don't be afraid of exhibiting your faith while you're at school. It's not something that you need to check at the schoolhouse gate. The Supreme Court of the United States has even said you have the right to bring that through that gate onto campus, and don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. Well, one of the saddest things is the notion that a student might believe that it's illegal to do that, and this is just a great reminder that it is not, and I appreciate First Liberty standing by to support those who might be told otherwise, because that uh, certainly is a falsehood. Absolutely. We're, we're happy to do it and make sure that that religious freedom is preserved for all Americans. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Jeremy. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Again, Jeremy Dice is Deputy General Counsel at First Liberty. Tomorrow is Bring Your Bible to School Day. Uh, he uh, weighing in on the legality of uh, the practice, not just tomorrow, but which is an expression of unity, kids from all over the uh, country bringing their Bibles to school, but also uh, is uh, perfectly acceptable and encouraged Uh, for those who attend public schools. Up next, we're going to talk with Kate Anderson. She serves as the third chair in a case that's currently before the U.S. Supreme Court. It's going to be heard on October 8th. She's with Alliance Defending Freedom. She's general counsel, and we're going to talk about uh, whether or not the word, uh, the statute that uh, deals with federal employment law uh, can be redefined by lower courts. And again, this is going to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, that will settle the issue not just for this particular case involving a funeral home and an employee, but has uh, very serious implications for women in particular. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission filed suit over the discharge of an employee who refused to comply with the Michigan Funeral Home's sex-specific dress code. It requires employees to dress in a manner that's sensitive to grieving family members and friends. Well, the EEOC attempted to force the business to allow a biologically male employee to wear a female uniform while interacting with the public. Well, it's gone to court. And here to uh, tell us the story from its beginning to where it stands today uh, is my guest, who is Kate Anderson. She serves as third chair in the case that's going to be heard on October 8th. She is uh, counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us, Kate. Thank you for having me. Well, let's begin at the beginning of this case. We've talked about it here on the program before, but I want to make sure our listeners know its beginning and where we stand now. Yes. So this case really is about whether Americans can rely on the law as it's written rather than what unelected officials want it to say. Um, And what happened here was we had a business, um, Harris Funeral Home. They've been in business for over 100 years, serving grieving families in the greater Detroit area. They had a funeral director who worked for them, um, a male funeral director, who had worked for them for about six years when he came to the owner and told the owner that he no longer planned to uh, comply with the dress code, um, a dress code that was in place to help the grieving families. Um, The uh, owners thought about that. He took some time to think about it, thought about the impact it would have on both this employee, other employees. Um, as well as the families that they serve, and concluded that he really needed this employee to follow the male dress code. Um, this em- they ended up parting ways, and this employee filed a complaint. Um, and then, as you described, the EEOC took this over and pushed this to try to make a change in the law to add gender identity um, to the understanding of sex. 
really interesting. Now, this employee, I think it's important to point out, had agreed at the time of his employment. This is this dress code standard. He had agreed to that standard. But then some time later, when he decided he wanted to present as a female, decided he was no longer willing to comply with the standard he had agreed to at the time of his employment. Yes. And he had followed that dress code for six years as well. Now, the law um, says that um, uses the word sex as opposed to gender identity and how that word or phrase is being applied really is at the heart of all of this. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ruled in this case uh, that the federal government can force Rost and his business to allow a male funeral director who identifies as female to violate the business's professional dress code, a code that in accord in accord rather with industry standards and federal law. Uh, by dressing as a woman when ministering to grieving families. Now, why is it important whether or not the word sex is uh, uh, is defined or um, uh, one's gender identity in these kinds of cases? And what are some of the broader implications that I think are important to emphasize as well? Absolutely. So the question before the court is whether sex, that term in federal employment law, is going to mean sex, biological sex, which is what it's meant since the laws were passed in 1964, Um, or if that's going to be now gender identity. And the consequences of that are significant, particularly for women. Um, Sex discrimination law that has developed under this employment statute um, has been about promoting women's ability to be in the workforce, to be treated equally in the workforce. Uh, And it prevents employers from treating men and women differently, um, from favoring men in particular. Um, And so if you start changing this to be gender identity, um, that breaks that down. Um, And we've seen that happen in places where gender identity has been added or read into the law. Um, For example, we're seeing it with women's athletics um, come up quite a bit now. There are cases in Connecticut um, where uh, high school athletes in the track, um, they're losing competitions to boys who are um, presenting as girls and then competing with the girls. So two boys took 15 spots that were held at the state level by girls previously in track. We're also seeing it in the privacy context. Um, For example, in Anchorage, Alaska, there is a women's shelter that provides overnight um, places for women to sleep who have been sex trafficked, who have been raped, um, who have been victims of domestic violence. And Anchorage tried to use gender identity to force that shelter to admit a biological man who presented as a woman and wanted to sleep in that shelter, which would have put him just feet away from women who have experienced trauma. Uh, So those are the kinds of things we're seeing happen. And those are the kinds of things that will continue to happen and happen on a broader scale if we make that kind of a change in the law. Yeah, absolutely. I was a, uh, an athlete in university. I uh, earned a scholarship. If I had had to compete against males as a high schooler, I probably would not have had that opportunity. So it's not just a matter of winning a singular race or losing to a biological male. It has much broader implications for the future of women in athletics, for their uh, their uh, eligibility for scholarships and so on. So this is a, it's an important issue that must be resolved. And it's Congress who defines the word that are used in employment statute, not judges, in this case, the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit uh, and other courts. Now, where does it stand now? Is the Supreme Court prepared to take this case on? Yes, the Supreme Court has taken this case and oral argument before the court will be on October 8th. One of the things that's fascinating to me is the level of support in uh, briefs that have been filed in favor of this funeral home, recognizing the broad implications. 48 members of Congress uh, have filed a brief in this case. Fifteen states agreed 
uh, urging the court in their brief to leave to Congress and to the political process any decision to make a different policy choice based on the words that are being used. So it's had pretty broad support in terms of briefs that have been filed in favor of your client. Absolutely. And we've seen people um, who we don't necessarily see often Mm -hmm. weigh in on these issues. Um, For example, the Women's Liberation Front weighed in on this with a brief talking about the very issues we have, uh, how women in athletics and in many areas of life will be negatively impacted um, by this decision. One of the statements they make in their report, their uh, brief is that if a matter uh, of law, anyone can be a woman, then no one is a woman and sex-based protections in the law have no meaning whatsoever. Uh, and then they went on to talk about um, the ruling. Are you optimistic moving forward that this is uh, going to be a successful effort, not only to preserve the rights of this funeral home in terms of its employees, but the broader implications for Title IX and Title VII and women uh, who have been protected by law from uh, unfair advantage that might be given uh, to those of other biological, uh, the other biological sex? We are optimistic in this case because it's a pretty simple, uh, definite question. Does sex mean biology as it has for the last 50-some years, um, or does sex mean gender identity? And we think that the textual reading of the statute is very clear and that the court um, should recognize the public understanding of sex that has been in place for so long. And as long as that stays intact, uh, the protections for women and for others under the statute will also stay intact. How on earth did the U.S. District Court uh, for the 6th District, how did they get it so wrong? Uh, they, <laughs> That's a loaded question. They, they, tried, <laughs> they did try to rewrite um, the statute. They've read into it gender identity, which is exactly what the EEOC initially um, pushed, and the government has since changed position. It's now the ACLU pushing um, this position, but Unfortunately, the Sixth Circuit agreed that sex could mean gender identity um, when that's not the way the statute has ever been interpreted um, by the Supreme Court, certainly. So we're quite hopeful that the Supreme Court will reverse that. Well, let me just say how much I appreciate the work of Alliance Defending Freedom. I'm a personal donor to the the work that you do, and I would encourage other listeners to do the same. In fact, you can find out more at our website, ChristianOutlook.com, to learn more about their work and how we can support um, their efforts on our behalf. I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us. I know that you're serving as the third chair for this case that's coming up uh, very shortly. So uh, your time is precious, and I appreciate that you gave some of it to us. Uh, some of it to us today. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Again, uh, ChristianOutlook.com if you'd like more information about ADF or Alliance Defending Freedom. They do great work, great organization. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk with Samuel Hakim. He is the president of Redeeming the Nations. They have their annual banquet coming up in about a week and a half. Uh, the theme is from Philippians 314, Pressing On. That's Sunday, October 13th at Embassy Suites at Washington Square. You can go to their website for more information. And let me encourage you to check that out because these are events that are always encouraging and inspiring. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I am delighted that with me in studio for the remainder of most of this hour of today's program, I'm going to talk with the president of Redeeming the Nations, Samuel Hakim. I've mentioned before that Redeeming the Nations is one of the ministries that I uh, support financially. I have such tremendous uh, confidence in the work that they're doing, and I'm just delighted to bring you up to date on some of the work uh, that's going on. And just an overview of uh, Muslims here and uh, across the globe and how uh, God is moving among them. I also want to remind you that the annual Redeeming the Nations Ministries Banquet is coming up, and this is a great opportunity to learn more about the work that they're doing. It's coming up on Sunday, October 13th from 5 to 8 at the Embassy Suites at Washington Square. You'll have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Clark Tanner, who's the Regional Executive Director of the Northwest Region of Pastor Serve. Um, also, Michael um, uh, Marcos, who's the producer of Redeeming the Nation's uh, programming. Uh, you'll hear from Samuel Hakim, the president of Redeeming the Nation. It's just going to be a great uh, time to come together to celebrate what God is doing and to get a better understanding of the challenges that lay ahead. So all of that um, will be enjoyed on Sunday, October 13th. If you're interested in more information, let me encourage you uh, to give them a, a call or um, uh, go to the website, and I'll give you that information in just a few moments. I'm not seeing it right in front of me. First of all, I just want to welcome you, Samuel Hakim. It's always a blessing to have you with us in studio. Thank you, Georgine. It's always a blessing for me to be here with you. I feel the presence of the Lord in the studio, mm. so that's an honor for me. Now, for listeners who are perhaps listening for the first time about our conversation of Redeeming the Nations, give us a brief description of this ministry and what you all do. Uh, this ministry is uh, is used by the Lord, obviously, to reach to the Muslim population, not only in America, but globally. I'm from the Middle East. I was born and raised in Cairo. And when I came here many years ago, I felt that the Lord is telling me that I'm giving you the freedom here that you didn't have back there. So you can share the good news with Muslims. We started with the Middle East because it was my heart to reach back to the Middle East. So we thought about it, and the Lord told us, no, it's not only the Middle East. You have a lot of Muslims who are moving out of the Middle East globally. They are in Europe, they are in Australia, they are in America, in Canada, in Mexico, and those Muslims need to hear the gospel. And we prayed and prayed and prayed, and we know that Muslims cannot come to a church. If we invite them to a church, the church mostly is not a clean place for them to come. And they are afraid that uh, Christians will make them become Christians. So they are staying away from the church. So the Lord at that time, back in 1996, gave us the idea that we can take the gospel to them. We can take the church into their home. We don't have to invite them to our church. How? Through the media, television. And back in 96, the media was not as popular as we have today. We have more mm-hmm. tools today. So we started in cable access television in America, uh, in Portland, Oregon, back in 96. And shortly after that, started spreading to six other states. By 1998, the Lord opened the door for us to go back to the Middle East through uh, a big channel. It's known until today. It's called Sat7. That was broadcasting from London to the entire Middle East and North Africa. Today, we thank God we are in 14 different international satellites broadcasting the gospel in Arabic to reach out to Muslims in Arabic language anywhere they are. We are covering literally every country in the world, in the globe, plus the internet, social media, YouTube, and so on. So the Lord is using the technology that we have today that we didn't have when we started the ministry 
to reach out to Muslims globally. And we see amazing fruits. Mm-hmm. I thank God for it. Absolutely. You know, there's always a redemptive side to whatever uh, technology <laughs> is available, that, that God use it for, uses it for redemptive purposes. And I think what you've described is a perfect example <laughs> of that. A lot of people are concerned about social media. They're concerned about technology and its impact on uh, on people here in this country, and yet God always uses what's available to us to extend um, his word out into places where you and I might not be able to go physically and where Muslims can listen in without being overheard, uh, perhaps in the privacy of their home, and have an opportunity to satisfy their curiosity in a way that they wouldn't otherwise um, have the opportunity. Uh, we thank God for the technology we have today. One of the names that's given to Satan in the Bible, he's the prince of the air, mm-hmm. mm. and he's trying to control the air, the airwaves, and we are stealing that from his hands. And I'm, I'm so glad to work where the Lord wants us to work, uh, to use the air, the tool that Satan is using, his dominion, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the entire world. Now, one of the things that I especially appreciate about the programming that Redeeming the Nations produces is that it speaks to the heart of the Muslim world. You address questions in a way that reflects what they're thinking, what misconceptions they might have, questions uh, that they have in a way that's that's very appealing and attractive. Can you describe some of the programming? Because I think that really illustrates um, the beauty of what Redeeming the Nations is producing. We have different programs, and each program has different flavor and different formats. We have uh, a magazine format, if you if can call it that, mm-hmm. that have multiple uh, little uh, segments uh, like testimony, worship, and uh, uh, Bible teaching, all that in one program. So that's a magazine format, and it's called Turning Point in Arabic language, of course. I'm not competing with Dr. David Jeremiah, <laughs> uh, but it's in Arabic language. And by the way, that's the name in Arabic for our Arabic uh, Facebook site that's reaching out to the Middle East in Arabic language. It's still carrying the same name, Turning Points. And uh, we have a different program. It's called uh, Jesus Said, uh, which is a five-minute program. We take one verse of the red-letter Bible, what Jesus thought, and we comment on it for five minutes. And we know that uh, the attention span is getting mm-hmm. shorter and shorter. So we have kind of a mixed bag. Uh, we have another program that's one minute and a half uh, talking to the heart of human beings. What pro- problems that human might have, uh, like abortion, gambling, drinking, uh, addiction, uh, child abuse, whatever problem it is. And we take... Uh, 30 seconds to present the problem in a drama, quick drama. 30 seconds to present the hope in Jesus Christ. 30 seconds, here is the information if you need help, how to contact us. Quick commercial format that's going very well. Uh, Another program that's running uh, on the air, and it's running right now on multiple satellites covering America, it's called The Teaching of Christ. This is uh, an interview format. Uh, I interview different speakers, and we take a series going together on The Teaching of Christ, like we took a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what did Jesus teach? And it's amazing enough that uh, one of the programs, or uh, some of the programs, I was filming in a studio in Egypt. Uh, that was in Ramadan. And, uh, you know, not everyone in the crew are Christians because we have to use some mm-hmm. professionals who are not Christians. So the lighting crew uh, are Muslims. We had three people in the lighting crew who were Muslims. During Ramadan, I had uh, one episode was talking about fasting. What is fasting as Jesus taught? Prayer. What is prayer as Jesus taught? And after I finished those two episodes, 
the lighting engineer came and gave me a big hug and said, I never heard teaching like that. And he was a Muslim. It was in the month of Ramadan. And he was fasting Ramadan and sitting in the studio listening to it. So before we broadcasted, it's already reached some audience. So praise the Lord. Yes. Uh, now, some listeners might imagine that uh, Muslims are hostile <clears throat> to the teachings of Jesus, to the name of Jesus. Uh, but they're very open to and interested in what Jesus has to say, because he is uh, a figure that is at least admired, not as the son of God. Um, what kind of response do you get from those who show an interest in what did Jesus actually teach? Uh, well, our attitude in the ministry, we are not there to degrade Islam or Muslims. And we try to make it a clear distinguish between Islam and Muslims. Those are totally two different things. And we teach what Jesus taught, even if it contradicts openly with the teaching of Islam and the Quran. But in the same time, we have a very high regard and respect and genuine love for Muslims mm-hmm. as human beings created after God's image, redeemed by Christ on the cross, And our goal is to proclaim the good news to them. So I'm sharing some good news with them. I'm not attacking them. Yes. Uh, One of the programs that uh, we broadcast, and it's running on the air right now, uh, it's called The Proof. And The Proof actually is a name taken from the Quran. There is a Quranic verse. Muhammad told them, Is'aluhum hatu burhanakum in kuntum sadiqeen. Ask them to bring the proof, talking about Christian and Jews, if they are true. So I said, you want the proof? Here is the proof. And we have two seasons of this program. The first one is a dialogue with a Muslim. The second season is a dialogue with an atheist. And I will talk a little bit later about atheists, why we are focusing mm-hmm. now on people who are atheists and agnostics. Uh, so one time we were filming in Pioneer Square. This program, we filmed it totally outside the studio in the open air. And we want it to be more real to people. We want people to engage with us. And even when we are filming, People come and engage in uh, mm-hmm. the production. So we were filming in Pioneer Square. And while we were filming, a Somali lady with the hijab on is walking by. She understands Arabic. She listened to us talking uh, in Arabic. So she sat a couple of steps behind our speaker in those steps on Pioneer Square. Yes. And she listened to two full episodes. She listened to the full message for two full episodes. And afterwards, she came forward And she started asking us questions about Christianity. We're talking about Redeeming the Nations. The president of Redeeming the Nations, Samuel Hakim, is with me in studio. I want to remind you that Sunday, October 13th, you'll have an opportunity to learn more for their banquet at the Embassy Suites at Washington Square. We'll give you more details about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. With me in studio, Samuel Hakim. He is the president of Redeeming the Nations, uh, a tremendous ministry reaching out to the Muslim world um, from right here and around the globe. So just uh, delighted to have you in studio. Also want to remind you, if you'd like to learn more, and I would encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity. You're going to hear the testimony from someone who has come out of um uh, Islam, uh, as well as others who are involved in this ministry. That's coming up on Sunday, October 13th. The banquet begins at five o'clock at Embassy Suites in Washington Square. And there are a couple of ways you can say, yes, I want to come. Uh, the phone number to uh, call is 720-984-8524. 
720-984-8524. You can also uh, email for information, info at rtnm.org. That's Redeeming the Nations Ministries, info at rtnm.org. If you're in your car, you don't get all of that down, feel free to call me here at the station or email me here at the station, and I'd be happy to pass that information along to you. I'm looking forward to the 13th uh, being a part of this event, and we'd love to have you come uh, as well. I know there's a great deal of fear, perhaps less so than uh, a decade ago, but there's fear that uh, just numerically Islam is going to overtake virtually every other world religion, including Christianity. What are your thoughts regarding that prospect, and how have current events had an impact on the likelihood that Islam is going to continue to spread? Well, Islam will continue to spread. That's normal. And I'm not afraid of the spread of Islam. But uh, there is a huge fear that Islam is going to take over. The question here, are we reaching them because Jesus died for them and God loves them to come to his kingdom? Do we want to help them to escape the eternal hell? Or we are reaching to them because we are afraid they might take over? Hmm. That makes a huge difference. So what is our motivation? That's the first question. What is our motivation? Uh We need to examine our hearts. Are we motivated by the Great Commission? Uh, Georgine, uh, you are a good friend to me. If uh, if you know that I need a decent suit for the banquet that's coming up, and I cannot afford the prices you have in big uh, stores like Macy's, and you go to the store and you find the suit I like fits good on me and on a very cheap price, in special discount. If you are a good friend, would you tell me? Absolutely. Okay. Because you love me and you know what I need, you share the good news for me. If we love Muslims and we know that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and we know that without Jesus, they are facing eternity that's not very good. Would we share with them how can they escape that fire? A firefighter who is fighting a house burning, if they know that there is a child inside the house that's inflamed, like what we have seen in Fireproof, would he risk his life to go inside with the training he has to rescue that child who is suffocating with the smoke and inflames inside? Absolutely. That's our responsibility. That's the motivation. But let's look at facts. Islam is growing for several reasons. Islam is growing because they are putting everyone in fear. Fear is our biggest enemy. It paralyzes us from sharing the good news, and it gives them opportunity to take more, more territory. Islam is growing because in Islam, they can have multiple wives. So they have fast birth rates. Uh, Islam is growing because we have low resistance. And I was sharing with uh, your bro- I'm listening to your program yesterday, and your guest, you share that one of the problems is in Christianity, we are not proactive, we are retroactive. We are lagging in, mm-hmm. in taking advantage of the opportunity. We are lagging in engaging in the need today. So the next generation might come back and curse us because we did not do our job that we can do today. And I pray that the Lord will move us and the next generation will stand up and bless us because we have done our job and we created an environment that we can share Christ with everyone around us. Is Muslim growing uh, as the fastest growing religion in the world? Not really. If we look at the statistics, actually, I have a good friend of mine. His name is Rashid from Morocco. He's a Muslim convert, and uh, he's working on his master's degree in religious studies. He wrote a book recently called The Future of Islam. I like the information he uh, put it in front of us. Unfortunately, the book until now is not published in English. But I will share some of the information with you. Islam is a religion based on force. 
that's changing in our time today. Actually, the force of Islam is one of the things the Lord is using to push Muslims out of Islam. Many Muslims, especially the younger generation, they see the violence in Islam and they say, if this is Allah in Islam, we don't want to follow him. This cannot be a religion from God. And when they go back to their books, they found that Islam is not peaceful, like many people think. Islam is asking people to kill anyone and everyone until they submit to Islam. And by the way, the word of Islam is not surrender to God. It means surrender to your enemy, like you are raising your hand up, I surrender. So Islam is taking over and we surrender. That's the meaning of Islam. It doesn't mean peace like many people think. Mm -hmm. So the younger generation are recognizing that and using the force is driving the younger generation out of Islam. Uh, Islam also is based on the tribe mentality, the community, and even they say openly that the whole world are two camps, Ummat al-Islam and A'da al-Islam, Baytullah wa Bayt al-A'da. That means it's, it's basically two camps. Either you believe in Islam and you, you will be in peace with us, or you are not accepting Islam and Muhammad as a prophet and you become to be our enemy. So it's based on the tribe mentality that existed when Muhammad started Islam in the 7th century. Today, with the technology we have, the whole globe is becoming to be one village. Mm -hmm. So you cannot do that anymore. That's working against Muslims. The other thing that's working against Islam is the language. The Quran is written in Arabic language. And Muslims forced Arabic language in many nations because they want to spread Islam. For example, I'm from Egypt. Arabic is not my language. It's not our original language in Egypt. We had the Coptic language that existed before Islam. is still spoken in Coptic Orthodox churches. Mm -hmm. But Islam forced Arabic language on us so they can spread Islam. Today with the internet, Age, all the young generation are speaking in Latin language. They're writing in Latin language. And even Al-Azhar University, the most prestigious universe, Islamic university in the world, it, uh, it's in Cairo, Egypt, they raise their concern and they have conferences to discuss how can we face that challenge. The Arabic language is dying. How can we spread Islam? Believe it or not, Muslims anywhere in the world, they have to pray and they have to read the Quran in Arabic language. They have to recite it in Arabic language, whether they understand it or not. They just memorize it and recite it. But the Arabic language is dying. That's working against Islam. Uh, I have uh, some information here from uh, the Pew Research that was published a couple of years ago. Of course, I'm going to share it and they have to be very careful because I read the name of the person who prepared the study, and he's a Muslim man. His name is uh, Bashir Muhammad. So even if it's done for Pew, but it's done by a Muslim. So we have to be very careful and examine the information. And he's sharing that 23% of Muslims globally are leaving Islam. I'm not saying that they are becoming Christians. And that's a challenge for us who have the good news. 23% of Muslims globally are becoming, uh, are leaving Islam. Many of them are becoming atheists, and we're going to talk about people who are becoming atheists, atheists and agnostic in a little bit, if we have the time to cover that. But also in the research, and this is the part that we have to be careful with, it might have some truth, but it might be exaggerated. He shared that in America, yes, 23% of Muslims in America are leaving Islam, but there is another 23% of non-Muslims are embracing Islam, converting to Islam. Of course, many of those are from the African-American yes. community. That's a big number. Now they are targeting Hispanics. 
and they have a, a hotline 800 number uh, for Hispanics. They have a whole staff to reach out to Hispanics with Islam. So what is our responsibility in the view of that? Mm. Why 23% of the Muslim community today are converts to Islam? Most of them are from the Protestant uh, faith, evangelical faith. Why? Most likely because they are not aware about the true teaching of Islam. So when Muslims tell them we worship the same God, Allah and God are the same, they believe it. They tell them that Islam is a peaceful religion. They believe it. They tell women that woman is highly respected in Islam. And Islam is honoring woman more than any other religion. People believe it. Is it true? How can we uh, counter that? Uh, we offer a lot of workshops, by the way, and seminars to churches to educate the church about Islam and what is the true Islam. And I would love to share that with any church. Yes. Yeah. We'll uh, return to that in just a few moments. But I do need to take a break. When we return, I'd also like to talk about um Atheism and agnosticism and how that is becoming a fact of those who are stepping away from Islam. And again, the opportunity that presents to those who take the Great Commission seriously. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My guest, Samuel Hakim, president of Redeeming the Nations. The banquet for Redeeming the Nations is coming up on October 13th. And let me encourage you, if you want to learn more and better understand the challenge and the opportunity that the church has been given, this is a great opportunity to do that. You can phone 720-984-8524. You can go to info at rtnm.org for Redeeming the Nations Ministry. Info at rtnm.org. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show about 37 minutes after 5 o'clock. I have to tell you, I so enjoy having um, my guest with us here in studio. Um, Samuel Hakim is just an incredible follower of Christ who is committed to sharing the gospel. And I, I'm inspired every time. You're with us. One of the things you mentioned when we were talking earlier about programming is that you have programming that is specifically designed to speak to the atheist and the agnostic. Now, that may be surprising to some of our listeners when you're reaching out to Islam. Can you explain um, the fact that as that percentage is stepping away, they're not stepping into another religion. Many of them are stepping out of faith altogether and how that's uh, how that's working. Well, if we look around us, we know that the, the new generation the culture around us is moving to that direction, moving away from God. They might be a little bit uh, spiritual, but they are not religious. So either they are becoming uh, completely anti-God and they reject God completely, or they might think there is a God, but I don't care if he exists or not. It it doesn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's in our culture here in America, in the West in general. Europe is more than us. Uh, but in the Muslim world, because of the internet nowadays, they are hearing what our younger generation are saying. And to them, that's becoming to be the new fashion. Many Muslims are rejecting Islam completely. And because they are rejecting Islam, they are rejecting God, the God of Islam, Allah. If, and this is the only God they know. They don't know about the God of love. So what are they going to do? They leave Islam and they become atheists. Many of them is not really atheists, they are deists, they are agnostics, Mm -hmm. they believe in a God who created something, but uh, he doesn't care about me, and I don't have to worry about him. So uh, we acknowledged that in our last uh, major program that we have done, The Proof, we know that the problem is not Muslims and inviting them to to Christ. In the Middle East, what is encouraging uh, that direction to go uh, quickly 
It's a crime if you leave Islam and become a Christian, and that crime can cost you your life. But if you leave Islam and become an atheist or an agnostic, nobody will bother. Hmm. And now it came to the point that they have Facebook pages, Facebook groups for atheists in the Middle East, openly talking about becoming atheists or agnostics. Uh, so the second season of the proof that we have done is a dialogue with the atheists, how to, to share God with the atheists. The new series that we're working on, and we just start filming that, uh, we were addressing that issue. The whole series is going to be at least about 120 episodes. And again, we're going for shorter episodes, uh, but bigger number of episodes because the attention span of the younger generation is getting shorter. And everyone is getting the information now from their uh, cell phone. So we don't want to, to put uh, longer programs on TV only. We want to talk to those generation and we know who is our target audience, mm-hmm. younger generation, while using modern technology like the iPhone and, and YouTube and stuff like that. So we want to address that with them. And the whole series, about 120 episodes, is going around four questions. Does God exist? Does it matter if God exists or not? Can I trust the Bible as the word of God and the information he gives me about God, who God is? And the last question we are dealing with, how can I be in relationship with this God, the creator? So the whole series, is, the whole program is going to talk about God, creation, and uh, we thank God for the beautiful Northwest. All this series is going to be filmed in the Northwest. The biggest chunk of the program is going to talk about evidence, scientific evidence, archaeological evidence, biblical evidence. And then the last part of the program is going to talk about if you heard the evidence, what are you going to do with it? And actually, this is the title of the program. How do you see it? I give you the evidence. And how do you see it? How do you respond? So follow that up at the end of the program with a gospel invitation to share the good news with them. Uh, and we pray that this program will accomplish what God put in our heart to accomplish, bring atheists to Christ. I cannot change everyone, but I have responsibility to proclaim the good news. Yes. I, I have a study that suggested that worldwide, 55% of the global population are becoming atheists or agnostics. Can you believe that? Mm. And how can we respond to that? Well, that's the big question. How should we as believers respond? Our culture tells us that um, it's insulting to share your faith, to try to persuade someone to think otherwise. It's culturally insensitive and so on. And for many in the younger generations, they have come to believe that it's, you know, sharing your faith is not a good idea. Uh, And yet what you've described is a tremendous opportunity. And as followers of Christ, are we going to be obedient to the culture and its way of Uh, viewing um, the world, or are we going to be faithful to the Great Commission that God has placed on us? What's your response to those who are fearful or who have become convinced that this really is not an acceptable practice to share one's faith and to fulfill the Great Commission? If you care, you share. That's my simple answer. If you care about them and you don't want to see them going to hell, then you have to talk about heaven and how to get to heaven. And as we get older and as we come closer to eternity, I feel that Urgency is increasing in my heart, and I see it in Luis Blau. I'm, I'm officing in Luis Blau building. I see it in, in, in his heart as well. Uh, Luis stopped by in, in my office today, and uh, he prayed for me, and, and he encouraged me to continue sharing the good news. So sharing the good news is the only way that we can do it. And uh, Paul, in First uh, Corinthians 9, 16, he mentioned something that uh, very strong. Woe to me hmm. if I don't evangelize. 
woe, and this is coming from God. When God says, woe to you, Samuel, if you don't share the good news, who am I to fear from man? Death, what are they going to do to us? Kill us? That's the easiest part. Because if the grain of wheat does not fall into the ground and dies, it will remain by itself. But if it falls into the ground and dies to itself, it will bring so many uh, wheats, so many fruits to the kingdom of God. And we have to be equipped with this mentality. Like Jesus Christ, he counted death as the way to win us to him. And he gave himself up. Paul counted everything he has as rubbish, mm -hmm. garbage. Why you are holding on what we have and why you are afraid? They call us lunatic. That's fine. They, they say, call us that uh, we are not politically sensitive. That's fine. Islamophobia is another term they use. You are afraid of Muslim. This is Islamophobia. Is it Islamophobia? Of oh, that fear has a reason. Phobia is a disease that has to be treated. But if you have a reason to fear, then you have to deal with the reason that brought fear. That's logic. It's not uh, against us. But again, Georgian, many people are afraid that Muslims is going to take over the whole world. I will share quickly because I know that we are running out of time and we have a lot to cover. Muslims are evangelistic by nature. We are afraid to share with them. Google the internet, you will find that Muslims have a whole website, how to convert Christians to Islam. And I will give you the sheet and I let you see the yes. 10 steps. It's, they call it the 10 commandments of Muslims to convert Christians to Islam. Why you are afraid? They are trying to convert us. Why you are afraid to, to respond? Uh, I came across an article that's very encouraging. And this is an article in one of the big outlets, news outlets in Europe. And uh, the title of that article, Muslims Converts Breathe New Life into European Church. Mm. And Europe has more struggle with uh, immigration and Muslims uh, growing in Europe more than USA. They are ahead in the game. And uh, what is happening? Muslims are coming out of their countries, going to the West because they are pursuing the new dream of freedom and money. But because they are coming out of oppression and they see the freedom and Christians in Europe are sharing the good news. My good friend Stephen Kelly, as we speak today, he is holding a conference in Germany on the border between Germany and um, uh, Astoria to train new Muslim converts how to steadfast in their faith. Mm. Thousands of Muslims, thousands and thousands of Muslims in Europe are coming to the Lord. Where are they going to go? They are going to the church. We think that the church in Europe is dying, but the church in Europe is getting a new influx of Muslim converts coming to the church and bringing life again to the church. I pray that we will wake up, share the good news, don't shy, and I pray that we'll see a lot of Muslim converts coming Amen. to our churches here. Amen. Again, Samuel Hakim, President of Redeeming the Nations. The banquet, once again, is coming up on Sunday, October 13th, 5 o'clock p.m. at Embassy Suites at Washington Square. I want to encourage you, if you'd like to learn more, to join us. You can RSVP at 720-984-8524. That's 720-984-8524. You can email info at rtnm.org. That's Redeeming the Nations Ministries. Uh, rtnm.org. Samuel Kakim, thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to the 13th. Thank you, Georgine. We're looking forward to And you're going to MC the whole program and you're going to worship with us. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be a good day. Actually, the whole program is going to be about worship and giving praise to the Lord, joining hands together to, to proclaim the good news. Amen. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Did you know that tomorrow, over 500,000 students are expected to observe 
Bring Your Bible to School Day. Now, we talked a bit about it earlier in the program, but more, more than half a million students in the United States are expected to take part in this year's Bring Your Bible to School Day observance. It was launched by the socially conservative group Focus on the Family way back in 2014, and the event will take place this year, tomorrow. It's centered on students sharing their Christian faith with their peers and doing so collectively, infusing them with a bit of courage in bringing their Bible to uh, to school. Well, in a statement that was released in September, the Colorado Springs, Colorado-based group uh, estimated that more than 500 students are going to participate this year, saying the annual student-led event, now in its sixth year, provides a unique opportunity for young people to share about their faith by highlighting its source, the Bible. Well, throughout the day, children and teens uh, will share their experiences via social media using the hashtag bring your Bible. According to the group, this year's observation, or rather observance, that's a better word, um, with the past year in that um, uh, they're presenting participating students with monthly challenges that involve specific tangible actions they can take to live out their faith at school and in the community throughout the year. They're also partnering with, well, Alliance Defending Freedom to offer free legal representation to any student who might be challenged by school officials for their involvement. I had an opportunity to speak in the first hour of the program with Jeremy Dice. He's Deputy General Counsel at First Liberty, uh, and uh, he uh, recalls a few cases in which um, a student who, uh, students who have uh, brought their Bible to, to school with them were challenged by their teacher and told, no, you cannot do that. Well, of course, that's not the case. And we had a conversation about whether or not it's legal for this to happen and whether or not it should be encouraged. If you missed that conversation and have questions, you can always go to our podcast at kpdq.com. Uh, but this is a great opportunity for kids to, um, uh, to take advantage of uh, fellow students coming together in a unified way to bring their Bibles to school and encouraged to share their faith with their peers, as is acceptable uh, by the First Amendment, as well as within the context of the school. One of the celebrity promoters of Bring Your Bible to School Day was uh, New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees. He appeared in a video promoting this year's uh, observance titled Shout Out from Drew Brees. It was a short video. It featured him encouraging students to take part in the observance and explaining his favorite verse of the Bible, which is 2 Corinthians 5-7, which reads uh, quite simply, For we live by faith, not by sight. So I would encourage you to live out your faith on Bring Your Bibles to School Day and share God's love with friends, he said in the video you're not alone. That's it. Well, his involvement wasn't without controversy, as the New Orleans-based liberal publication Big Easy Magazine criticized the NFL player for associating with a Christian organization due to its stance on its biblical stance on LGBT issues. Well, Big Easy Magazine launched the Twitter hashtag Saints Don't Hate and was joined by progressives, um, uh, entities like the Advocate, Queerty, uh, Pathios, Friendly Atheist blog, and so on. Well, Breeze didn't just film a commercial urging kids to bring their Bibles to school. He filmed an ad for one of the most vehemently um, uh, groups opposed to our core values, the, the Friendly Atheist blog claim. We'll focus on the family president, Jim Daly. And by the way, that program is heard here on KPDQ. He expressed gratitude for Bree's involvement in a statement provided to the Christian Post last month, saying, we have deep respect for New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees and appreciate his him encouraging students to live out their faith on Bring Your Bible to School Day and share God's love with friends. Um, in any event, um, there there very uh, well may be challenges, and there are those who are standing by and prepared to support students uh, who may uh, hear from 
uh, administrators, from principals or teachers that it's uh, not allowed uh, when, in fact, legally it is allowed. And the Supreme Court president has already spoken to that subject. I would encourage you to be in prayer for students who perhaps for the first time, maybe they do it every year, maybe they do it on a regular basis to bring their Bible to school, to uh, accept the challenge that's been posed to share their faith and the love of Christ with their classmates uh, and to do so effectively, that they would have the courage to do this simple thing that might ultimately lead them to do perhaps bolder things in the future. But that's uh, coming up tomorrow. Uh, And again, that starts at the beginning of the school day, all throughout the day. So keep uh, young people in your prayers throughout the day. Well, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to talking with Michael Barone. He is the author of How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. The book is published by Encounter. We'll discuss that with him on Friday, excuse me, on Thursday. And then on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Looking forward to that. There's certainly a lot going on, and we will uh, certainly cover headline news at the start of the program. But then we'll drift off into some of the lighter side of the news and give you an opportunity to perhaps end the week with a smile on your face. And who knows, you might even chuckle a time or two in the midst of all of that. So that's coming up on Friday. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I want to remind you, tomorrow is Bring Your Bible to School Day. If you think of it as you're in your car making your way to work and you're seeing kids walking down the streets, crossing the streets, so say a little prayer for those who in their backpack might be bringing their Bibles, maybe for the first time, but making a commitment that along with bringing their Bible, they're going to share their faith with their classmates. That's going to require some real courage on their part. I hope they have examples in their life, parents and teachers and others uh, who are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are, are doing so on a regular basis as well. But this is a generation of young people who are facing the potential of significant backlash. So let's be in prayer for them as they uh, take this step of faith. Some 500,000 of them, we are being told, expected to observe Bring Your Bible to School Day. So that's coming up tomorrow. All right. Appreciate you taking the time to listen once again tomorrow on the program. We'll talk with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. The book is published by Encounter. Hey, have a great night. We'll be back here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.